talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our segment with Duke Goldman talking baseball with the Duke. Welcome to the show, everyone. Duke Goldman is, of course, a Northampton-based member and a leading light of SABRE, that is the Society for American Baseball Research. He is a prolific author about baseball and baseball history, and he is an expert on the Negro Leagues and the history of African Americans in baseball. And I'd like to start off our show today with you, Duke, by asking about something that was in the news that I was surprised to learn that this year in the World Series, there is no American-born, African-American baseball player on either team. And it reflects what is a decreasing participation in Major League Baseball of African-American ballplayers. And I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective. You are truly an expert on this in this field and on this topic. Help us understand what's going on here. Well, as you noted, Bill, there has been a steady decline in African-American participation in baseball on every level. Um, and I saw statistics recently that said that 7.2% of major league rosters in 2022 were African-American, which is a, a low of about 60-plus uh, years. Uh, previous low was 7.6% in, in the last year or two. So it, it had kind of leveled off in the seven high sevens, but now even dropping a little bit further. And when you think about that, it isn't all that surprising. Um, almost statistically, you'd expect it at some point that you'd have a year where the two rosters, 50 players, and you have nobody who's African-American. Uh, it was bound to happen, but it's it's kind of a warning sign. It tells you that uh, the game has uh, moved to different pastures, so to speak. Now, uh, you know, the politics of race is complicated. You have a, a, a continuing rise in Latino ball players, and many of them are ball players that would be considered of color. Some of them identify as people of color. Some of them don't. Um, there certainly are players like that in 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 this World Series. But I think it's noteworthy because then you hearken back to the last time you had no African-American ballplayers, and it was the year 1950, right? So when integration was just beginning, when the New York Yankees were still five years away from integrating, when the Boston Red Sox were nine years away from integrating, <laughs> um, and the Phillies also, who were the Yankees' opponents in that World Series, that the Yankees won four straight, uh, also themselves were, I believe, eight years away from integrating. So you had, you know, a still largely white sport, and at that point you had no African Americans in the World Series. So what are we seeing now? Well, now there are none, 72 years later. I'm interested in what you were just saying, Duke, about uh, baseball having gone on to essentially look for ball players in places other than the United States. And Therefore, there's less recruiting as a practical matter of African-American, potential African-American major league ball players. 
and I would like you to give us a bit more information and perspective on why. Why, I mean, African-Americans changed the game of baseball for the better. I mean, we look at the heroes of, of the 50s and 60s and 70s, and so many of them uh, were African-Americans. And baseball doesn't care about this group of potential athletes anymore. What's going on? Well, I, I guess I wouldn't say baseball doesn't care. I will want do want to point out um, this is, you know, almost anecdotal, but still, last year, the, out of the first five uh, major league draft picks in the first round, four of them were African-American. So, um, you know, again, I don't think that's going to change the numbers dramatically, but it, it at least indicates there's still talent out there. Major League Baseball recognizes that talent and is interested in that talent. Um, having said that, uh, what you have is something operating on many different levels. On the level of the major leagues, what's going on is, and has been going on for years, is they see so much more talent. Uh, let's face it, baseball is not nearly as popular a sport on all sorts of levels, particularly young ages in America. Um, and baseball is also played largely on travel teams, uh, and it has equipment demands. And so there's the politics of, of e economics, uh, involved and uh, a lot of African American families do not have uh, adequate resources to equip their kids to play on these travel teams. I wouldn't say that's completely true, but I think it has an impact. Uh, Major League Baseball has a uh, system where they have academies in a variety of countries, Latino countries, and in those countries, baseball is played as one of the, if not the primary sport by teenagers, and it's seen as an avenue away from the abject poverty that exists in many of those communities, and baseball employs these individuals known as buscones, who are those who find these ball players, and they sign them, and there has been some movement in the direction of requiring that these players go through drafts, but in most countries, the players that are found do not go through drafts, so they can be signed cheaper. They used to sign them underage. Now they have requirements that they have to be at least 16, but that still means 16-year-olds are signed uh, and developed in the systems of Major League Baseball, whereas here in the United States, they're not drafted normally until they're 18 when they're graduating from high school. So it's the idea of getting cheaper talent and developing them and getting them ready for the Major Leagues, um, and it's, it's about efficiency. So uh, overall, does Major League Baseball see this as a problem? Without a doubt, they do. They've had a reviving baseball in the inner city program for years, and they're, they're, they're trying to do something, but it's not nearly enough. Um, for years, I've been saying, well, is it really that bad? I mean, you know, the population is maybe 11 or 12 percent African American, you know, so if you have something close to that, a little bit less. Uh, how off is that? But then as it keeps dropping down now, if we're down to 7.2%, if it's trending down, then we're at a point where African-Americans are really significantly underrepresented in sports population at the same time where in other major sports they are overrepresented. And so the disparities are great. I'd like to continue this conversation. We're going to do that in upcoming shows with you too, Colvin. Uh, and I wanted, I want to learn more about this and... Uh, what the perspective is and what it tells us, for example, that so many African-Americans, such a high percentage of players in uh, the National Basketball Association or in, in, in the uh, NFL are African-Americans and so few, relatively speaking, in baseball. Uh, I, I think that's a really, it's a matter of interest and, and concern. And we're gonna come back to it in future shows. I, I would like to 
in this morning ask you to focus on the immediate issue or more of the immediate issues of baseball, which is we have a World Series coming up uh, in which the Los Angeles Dodgers are not one of the teams. The Atlanta Braves are not one of the team. The New York Yankees are not one of the teams. The New York Mets are not one of the teams. Those are teams that all won 100 plus games. They are the best teams in baseball, I think. Uh, the Yankees only won 99, Bill, and I noticed how you <laughs> slid the Yankees right into the middle of that pack. <laughs> All right, it's a minor detail. But but in the big picture, this question was pretty accurate. What's the story? Well, let's first bash the Yankees a little bit. They lost yes, in... <laughs> <laughs> they lost four straight games. Uh, my friend Kevin Cook, a noted sports writer who, who is a neighbor of mine, uh, who knows Aaron Boone quite well and likes him a lot, had said to me when I ran into him at the beginning of the series, um, it's going to go seven games. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, I'm not going to say I predicted four, but I'm not surprised. Houston was lights out better than the Yankees. Just no comparison. Um, and the Yankees have a lot to reckon with right now, particularly what are they going to do and are they going to get Judge? And everybody's writing about uh, Judge may go to the Giants. The Giants are going to outbid everybody. The Dodgers are interested in them, in him. Uh, it, and the Yankees losing Judge would be a disaster. Meanwhile, uh, no, noted, noted former Yankee great Mariano Rivera spoke out and said he thinks the Yankees ought to be firing Aaron Boone. He said, that's the not manager. What, the manager. Yeah, that that's, you know, Aaron Boone's. Been, yes, the team's done very well for the five years. Boone has been the skipper of the team. They've won uh, over 60 percent of their games. They've been in the postseason, but they have not made it into a World Series. And for, as far as Rivera's concerned, that's an indication change needs to be made. But apparently Hal Steinbrenner has already said he's you know, that uh, Boone is the right man for the job. It's not entirely clear yet whether Brian Cashman will continue as GM, but people think he will. So the Yankees have things to do, without a doubt. So moving on, the question now becomes, is Houston going to decimate the Phillies just like they decimated the Mariners and the Yankees? And the answer to that is, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if we knew what the answer to that is, nobody would watch because we just say, hey, you know, hand it to Houston, right? There is an obvious disparity here. Houston won 106 games and the Phillies won 87. The last time there was that much difference in the win totals between two teams in the World Series goes back to 1906 when the Chicago Cubs had won 116 games and the Chicago White Sox had won, I believe, 92 or 93. And that was in a 154-game season. The Cubs had the best winning percentage of the modern era. And guess who won that World Series? Cubs. No. What? <laughs> the White Sox. The hitless <laughs> wonders White Sox pulled it off and upset the Cubs. So there you have the possibility that always exists. Two teams who've made it through the postseason. Clearly the Phillies were hot the second half of the year. Um, they've got several sluggers. They've got Aaron Nola and uh, Zach Wheeler, who are top-notch starters, going in games one and two. Um, you never know. Right. Having said that, Houston is better basically on every level, and some of their top talent, uh, Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez in particular, have just started to hit. Bregman has been hitting all through um, uh, the postseason, and um, I think most people, in fact, I just saw an MLB.com had 75 baseball so-called experts vote, and 58 of them picked the Astros to win. So the Astros are are the bet. Having said that, I don't know, Bill, I know you read the New York Times. Tyler Kepner had an interesting column where he said 
he thinks the Phillies are really going to do well because they have history, Philadelphia defeating Houston teams, both in baseball and in other sports. And I thought, well, how entertaining and interesting is that? But quite a stretch at the same time. Yeah, that's a total stretch. And and it's irrelevant, uh, I think. But what is relevant is something that you said, which is that the Phillies have been hot in the second half of the year. And it, it brings back the adage that the World Series is not between the two best teams in baseball. The World Series and who wins uh, World Series is not the best team in baseball, but who wins is the best team in October. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that, because that seems to be particularly relevant this year. Well, uh Yes, the Phillies made it to the World Series. The Phillies were the last team in the National League to get into the playoffs. The Phillies have done well. On the other hand, the Astros have won seven in a row in the playoffs. Who's hotter? Uh, I don't know. I I would pick the Astros, but you know what? Baseball is also a game of inches. Might we be discussing something different if, for instance, in game two of the ALCS, Aaron Judge's shot traveled a few extra inches and became a home run and and the Yankees won game two? I don't know. I still think the Astros probably would have won, but you would have had probably at that point a 1-1 series. And so it comes down to does does Brian does Bryce Harper's, you know, shot in the eighth inning, you know, go over the fence or hit the top of the fence? Sometimes it comes down to that. Um, I think the Phillies need to win at least one of the first two games in Houston. If they do, they've got a real shot. Yeah, I'm actually – I never thought I'd say this this year, but I'm really, really rooting – for the Philadelphia Phillies, I really want them to beat Houston. I want Houston to get its comeuppance because, well, and I have an email for you to share from one of your dear friends about how, well, Houston actually does have that core of the team that cheated its way to the World Series and beat that as hated for some New York Yankees. We're going to be back with the Duke, talking more baseball with the Duke right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley, weekday afternoons at 4. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. An ensemble of women, BIPOC, femme, dedicated to the transformative power of dance and social justice. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents the Ananya Dance Theater in Dostok, I Wish You Me. Dostok, I Wish You Me explores the cross-generational love that carries global communities through difficult migrations, reimagining the possibilities of freedom. Led by acclaimed dancer, choreographer, and educator Ananya Chatterjee, the Ananya Dance Theater is a dynamic ensemble. The Chicago Tribune says, more than most contemporary Indian dance choreographers, Chatterjee has completely transformed her genre. Get tickets at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Ananya Dance Theater, Dasta, I Wish You Me. Thursday, November 3rd, 7.30 p.m., Bowker Auditorium at UMass. 
What's more important, a great paying job or feeling fulfilled at the end of the day? Well, when you work at Cooley Dickinson Hospital Northampton, you won't have to choose because you'll get both. Cooley Dickinson Hospital has great paying and fulfilling openings in environmental services and transport. And today, October 27th, they're holding on-the-spot interviews from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the North Entrance, 30 Locust Street, Northampton. Or visit CooleyDickinson.org today. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we are talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman, Northampton-based leading light of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, prolific author, baseball historian, and expert. And I want to ask you and bring into our conversation, Duke, uh, something that we've been talking about having to do with uh, religious observances by players in Major League Baseball. Uh, but before we do that, and before we leave the topic of Aaron Judge, I want to ask you, if the Yankees fail to sign Aaron Judge, and they might well, because he's going to be 31 years old next year, he's going to be looking for a long-term contract. This is the first year in his career, Major League Baseball career, when he's actually been healthy the whole year. And he's going to be looking for a really large pot of gold as the Yankees management puts it, if the Yankees fail to sign Judge, is this going to be similar to the Red Sox trading Babe Ruth to the Yankees? No, not that similar. (laughs) (laughs) The Yankees are going to find a way to compete. The Yankees will still have one of the top payrolls. And, you know, if they lose Judge, maybe they'll go out and sign Jacob deGrom away from the Mets, you know, or some other leading light. Having said that, Judge is the face of the franchise. The, the fan base will be really up in arms. Um, I think it will hurt them, and I don't think there's a player of his stature as a power hitter who's out there on the marketplace. So uh, will it be a problem for them next year? Probably, yeah. I think they're going to go as far as they can go, but they may end up getting outbid. It's going to come down to Judge and whether Judge wants to stay with the Yankees no matter what or whether he wants to take top dollar because I have a feeling somebody may well outbid the Yankees. Well, I want to ask you one last question about that then, because there was a story that I read either last night or this morning said the Yankees are not the top payroll and they're not and they're really clearly don't want to be the top payroll in baseball. And what the Yankees are paying for in terms of talent is talent enough to get into the playoffs, which they do every year. They're the best team in baseball percentage wise in terms of getting into the playoffs. But they haven't won a World Series since, what, 2009? It's an eternity in in the Yankee history. 
Well, so maybe they're just going to have to get used to that and be like all the other teams, which I would relish greatly. Yeah, you know? 86 <laughs> years sounds like a good round number. I'd like about 300 years, but, you know. <laughs> uh, they still have one of the top payrolls, but no, they're generally not the very top. And the view- thing that has been expressed in the media is that Steinbrenner children are not like Steinbrenner father. They like to compete, but they also like to make money, and they like to get along with the other owners. George didn't give a fig about any of that, and he would spend the most and do the best to win. Although, still, sometimes the Yankees won despite George, because he would do things like corner the market on first baseman slash designated hitters, and you know he, he wasn't always successful, but he had his periods where they did do very well. Let's turn to another topic that we were talking about, and I'd appreciate your bringing our listeners in on this conversation. Uh, We were talking about Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg, and in particular, Jewish baseball players who had uh, said they and would not play during the high holy days. And you had a lot of interesting things to say, and I wish you would share those observations with our listeners. So the two players that are in the Baseball Hall of Fame who are Jewish were Sandy Kovacs and Hank Greenberg. And Hank Greenberg in 1934 was the first baseman slugger of the Detroit Tigers. And the Tigers were in their first pennant race essentially in 25 years. And came Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jewish New Year, and there was some discussion about whether he ought to be playing on Rosh Hashanah. And uh, a local rabbi in Detroit said, yeah, you know, Rosh Hashanah is a day of celebration. It's okay to play. So Greenberg went out and hit two home runs. But the next week it was Yom Kippur, and it was still the pennant race. And Greenberg decided uh, that he needed to sit and not play to observe the Day of Atonement. And um, it was a certain amount of controversy about it. But in the end, most people seem to have come around to the view that he was honoring his people. And there was a well-known poem written by a guy named Edgar uh, Guest, who uh, ran in the Detroit Free Press. And the last line said as follows, said Murphy to Mulrooney, we shall lose the game today. We shall miss him at the bat, but he's true to his religion, and I honor him for that. So he got some good publicity, but Greenberg would always tell you that he faced quite a bit of anti-Semitism in his career. Now go 31 years later, and now it's 1965, and we know that uh, the, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so the holidays don't always fall at the same time. This t- year, 65, the holidays were later, and it was the first game of the World Series was Yom Kippur, and now the, the Los Angeles Dodgers facing the Minnesota Twins, Koufax was their ace, and he echoed Greenberg and said, I cannot play today. And Don Drysdale, the sort of co-ace of the Dodgers, pitched, and Drysdale lost. And the Dodgers lost the first two games. Koufax lost the second game, but they went on to win the series in seven games. The question today is, will Alex Bregman, who is now the probably most prominent Jewish player in baseball for the Astros, will he at some point in his career encounter this same situation? It won't be in the World Series because the last day that Yom Kippur appears on the calendar is October 12th, and now World Series are later. Although the World Series begins on Shabbat, are you allowed to play baseball on Shabbat? Well, very observant Jews would not, Uh but he definitely isn't, although Bregman was bar mitzvahed. So I'd like you to go back to this question of Hank Greenberg and anti-Semitism, because of course there is this story, and you dispute it, I think, that Hank Greenberg, who was chasing Babe Ruth's record, and he had 58 home runs, um, 
was not pitched to toward towards the end of the season because pitchers did not want and players and management did not want a Jew to ba break Babe Ruth's record. What, what's what is the history of that? What is the what what is the record historic record historical record show? Um, the historical record shows that Greenberg did not hit any home runs in the last five games of the season. So, um, and I think he was walked a number of times. Uh, does that mean he wasn't pitched to, you know, or that there were individuals out there who did not want to see a Jew break Babe Ruth's record? Undoubtedly. I'm sure there were. Was it a league-wide conspiracy where nobody pitched to him? Um, we know of those conspiracies existing, for instance, in Japanese baseball when an American player was trying to break Sadaharu O's seasonal record because they were open about it. The Japanese all spoke out about how they wanted their uh, somebody of their ethnicity to hold on to the record. Um, there wasn't nearly that consensus, I think, going on with Greenberg. But if it was true in his mind, then it probably had an impact on him. Um, I think it was a lot more what Aaron Judge faced this year near the end, where you know nobody wants to give up the the home run and be famous for you know throwing the record-breaking home run ball, and and uh, they pitch a little more carefully, and the batter is also in both in Judge and I think Greenberg's cases a little more nervous, a little less in their flow, and they don't succeed. Okay. We're back to Aaron Judge. I want to conclude by asking you about this. Aaron Judge had 62 home runs during the regular season. He was a baseball phenom. And it, what he was accomplishing brought a lot of people who don't give a damn about baseball um, into looking at sports coverage and reading about Judge and talking about Judge. He got to the World Series and he hit about 150. Uh, he had two home runs in the entire playoffs. He was the he was the offensive uh, juggernaut for the Yankees. He was the reason they won 99 games. He carried the team, and yet he didn't perform well in the playoffs when they really needed him. What do you make of that? Uh, first of all, he wasn't wasn't hot at the end of the season, and a lot of times that carries over, right? So he, I think he was a little bit out of sync getting into the postseason. There was a lot riding on his shoulders. He was facing the best pitching. And what Houston has and had in that series more than any other team is incredible relief pitching. You saw that, Bill. Game after game, starting fifth, sixth inning, they had five, six guys coming in, one after the other, who had outstanding fastballs, who were great pitchers. Um, I think a lot was riding on Judge's shoulders, and he simply didn't deliver. Because he was under pressure or because it was just, well, this is how the baseball season flows and sometimes you're hot and sometimes you're not. Is that the is I that think the it's a combination, you know, and, and, you know, it's impossible to say exactly why. I think all of the factors that played into it uh, put pressure on him and, and he just wasn't hot at the right time. And, and again, though, if that one ball that he hit that was just short of the fence had gone over the fence, that may have changed everything. But it didn't. He didn't get that key home run. And, you know, he made the last out of, uh, of the ALCS, grounding out. Yeah, yeah, to the pitcher. Yeah. It was a kind of a Casey at the bat kind of moment. But you're right. Baseball is a game of inches. If the ball had gone over the fence, we might be talking about Aaron Judge as the hero. That's right. That got the Yankees into the World Series. Possibly. Yes. But, Monty, you don't have to face that now, so... Your baseball world is better. When did, where did the Red Sox end up again, Monty? I believe last place. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. 
And Duke, last question. The Red Sox for next year, for those of our listeners saying, what about my team? What about the Red Sox? Are they going to be in contention next year? Who knows? Let's see how they play. Let's see who they sign or re-sign. Is Xander Bogart going to opt out? I think so. Um, you know, will Raphael Devers get a new contract? That would be helpful. Uh, they don't look that good to me, in all honesty. I, I think they could be at the fringe of contention, but I, they're certainly not one of the powers of the American League East. And I would point out that Duke Goldman at the beginning of the season said the Red Sox are a 500 team and they are not going to be in contention. So Duke Goldman has a pretty good track record on predicting what happens to the Red Sox. Duke, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate you and your insights. Thank we you. have been talking baseball with the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Some Amherst officials are questioning the use of the term the Amherst Nine in reference to nine youth that were questioned over the summer by police and told they had no rights. The Progressive Coalition of Amherst, Sunrise Amherst, Defund 413 Amherst, and People of Color United are using the term as shorthand for the teenagers that were stopped on July 5th, saying it's an explicit connection between what happened in Amherst to the Central Park Five, according to the Gazette. Counselor Annika Lopez and Dr. Shirley Jackson Whitaker issued a statement saying it's profoundly disrespectful for anyone to use this association so loosely, and it's traumatic to witness these civil rights pioneers' mistreatment made light of by a sensationalized comparison. Massachusetts residents can expect to pay a lot more to keep their homes warm this year as prices for oil rise. The cost of heating is estimated to go up 28.6% for homes with natural gas, 18.6% for homes with heating oil, and 54.6% for electric. Applications for home energy assistance are currently being accepted through multiple programs online, and income-eligible households may receive help from November 1st through April 28th. MassCap is one of those organizations offering help for both renters and homeowners. Depending on your heat source, you may be eligible for more than $1,000 in assistance. And the Drug Enforcement Administration's National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day is being held this Saturday. Police departments across Massachusetts will be collecting drugs, including tablets, capsules, patches, and other solid forms of medication. This service is free and anonymous. Becoming mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 62 to 66. Clear, cool tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 50s, overnight lows of 28 to 34. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 54 to 58. Mostly sunny, low 60s on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. A medida que el precio del combustible para calefacción está aumentando y las familias están preocupadas por llegar a fin de mes este invierno, el gobierno federal anunció asistencia de calefacción para hogares de bajos ingresos. MassCap, el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Comunitario de Massachusetts y varias otras agencias estatales están lanzando su campaña anual de concientización en todo el estado para garantizar que los hogares vulnerables en Massachusetts puedan mantenerse calientes este invierno y el estado está brindando asistencia de calefacción a los más necesitados. La ayuda está disponible tanto para inquilinos como para propietarios de viviendas y se aplica a todas las fuentes de energía, no solo al petróleo. Y los funcionarios dijeron que dependiendo de su fuente de calefacción puede ser elegible para recibir más de mil dólares en asistencia para calefacción. Las solicitudes se aceptan ahora y aquellos que califiquen pueden recibir ayuda desde el primero de noviembre de 2022 hasta el 28 de abril de 2023. 
En otras informaciones, una jueza ordenó el miércoles que el ex jefe de gabinete de la Casa Blanca, Mark Meadows, testifique ante un gran jurado especial que investiga si el entonces presidente Donald Trump y sus aliados intentaron influir ilegalmente en las elecciones estatales de 2020. La fiscal de distrito del condado de Fulton, Fanny Willis, abrió la investigación a principios del año pasado sobre las acciones tomadas por Trump y otros para anular su derrota ante el demócrata Joe Biden. Meadows es uno de varios asociados y asesores de alto perfil del expresidente republicano, cuyo testimonio ha buscado Willis. Debido a que Meadows no vive en Georgia, Willis, una demócrata, tuvo que usar un proceso que implica hacer que un juez donde vive en Carolina del Sur ordene su comparecencia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly Reverend and the Rabbi segment. This week we have with us Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware and Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel here in Northampton. Reverend and Rabbi, I want to read to you and share with our listeners a news article, front page of yesterday's New York Times, and I have a number of questions to ask you both. I'm just going to read just a bit. Here's the headline. Climate pledges fizzle as havoc looms for globe. Bleak report by UN. Nation's lack of progress risks rapid warming. Summit nears. That's the headline or the subheads. And here are a couple of sentences from that piece. Countries around the world are failing to live up to their commitments to fight climate change, pointing Earth towards a future with more intense flooding, wildfires, wildfires, drought, heat waves, and species extinction according to a report issued Wednesday by the United Nations. Just 26 of 193 countries that agreed last year to step up their climate actions have followed through with more ambitious plans. And then the article goes on to say how the United States and China have failed to with their pledges. Without drastic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, the report said the planet is on track to warm by an average of 2.1 to 2.9 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial levels and that would occur by the year 2100, which is far higher than the landmark set in the Paris, Paris Agreements in 2015. It increases the threshold beyond which scientists say the likelihood of catastrophic climate impacts will significantly increase. We're stewards of the earth. I've heard this from you, Rabbi Justin David. I know I've heard this from you as well, from Reverend Carol Bull. How do you reconcile what we are doing to the earth with what the commands of scripture are with how we are to be stewards of the earth? Let me start with you, Rabbi, and then I'm going to go to Reverend Carol Bull. Yeah, well, it, it's not too hard to reconcile in the sense that the we are not destroying the earth. Um, you know, the, there, there are players uh, who have the ability to to change and they're not changing and 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 the forces that have have caused climate change have been around have been with us for you know close to 150 years at this point so so i think when we say we right and and 
evoke the sense of uh, human agency uh, in this moment, it's not the we who are destroying it. It's being just, it's been destroyed. It's being destroyed. There are people who, who have decision-making power who are not uh, choosing wisely. So that's one thing. But, but as far as we, as far as we're concerned, I think it's important for us to acknowledge a kind of um, universal um, dread um, that's taking hold. And um, it's expressed in a lot of ways. It's been measured in adolescence, but the ad but adolescents are um, really a reflection of our whole society. And the question that that I find myself confronting is not how do we make this dread go away, but how do we listen to it and find other strategies for um, for living our lives and, and while addressing climate change. And um, that's that's where I am with that. So I can't reconcile it, but we can find ways to live, and I believe we can find ways to live with a realistic hope. Let me turn now from Rabbi Justin David to Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor of the United Church of Where. Car Carol, just before we get your perspective on this, the United Church of Where. What is the United? It, it, where does that come from? What does that mean? Yeah, the, the United um, references a United Methodist Church and a United and a congregational church that came together about a hundred years ago to uh, to join together. So um, uh, that's what it's it's two two entities joined together, which is true in many. We've talked about this even on the show. I think uh, like the United First Churches is a combination of American Baptists and UCC because they didn't have enough members way back when to to make a go of it. So that's where the United Church of Weir comes from. But we are and we're currently uh, still connected with the United Methodist Church and the United Church of Christ. Okay, thank you. So yeah. to the climate change question that. Rabbi Justin David was addressing your perspective, please. Yeah, you know, I want to tell you, I read that headline yesterday and I wanted to put the paper away for the next five weeks, but I didn't. Um, and I think um, I, I, I have to say regarding climate, I am a baby. You know, I'm just basically learning a little bit at a time right now on this topic. The United Church of Christ has a green climate challenge. It's a five-step process. And we're, our church is going to be working on the first, which is you know education and choosing one small thing to do as a church, and then build on that success as we go forward. Um, so that's a good thing. Our denominations are active in this mode. One of the things we also have been doing the past several weeks after church is we've been showing our members a seven minute video about the important, the sacred need to vote, that it's a sacred, gift that we have to vote. And what, what some people have found is that with environmental issues, about a quarter of the people who say they are interested in climate change and want to do something new don't vote. So uh, this little seven minute video that people are watching in small groups in our administrator's office or in my office, we're all getting the message that, you know, there's a difference between being partisan and being political. And of course, Jesus 
was political. It was all, he was a political person. Um, and so we clarify that for our congregation and hopefully anyone who wasn't going to vote, and I don't know if someone was going to vote or not, I haven't asked them, will now do so and do so based on the values that we hold uh, in our faith tradition. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, the dread I think that you spoke about, Justin, is real because uh, I've heard it from young people as you have as well. And um, I think we all have to, each, each faith community has to pick the thing that they want to do. So I, I have a little group that started off in our faith community and we start talking about, well, we give away these meals as fundraisers and also as gifts and we give them away in styrofoam. And so we'll, we'll let's stop using that. Well, it turns out it's, it's more complicated than just not using styrofoam because locally in where, and I have a bunch of styrofoam in my basement, I don't know where to take it. And in where they have no idea where to take it. So, um, you know, and so maybe we'll start small with, please don't, you know, use disposable cups, bring in your own mug, you know, that type of thing. Um, but some of the solutions turn out to be just a little more complicated than I imagined. And I heard a podcast about this actually, in terms of, how much the United States is going to have to change to carry out some of the new technologies that are going to help us. And there are statewide, you know, whole areas of our country that are going to need to look very different. And so, um, you know, I, I just want to say it, the, the, the solutions aren't simple. Uh, but we have to get our mind around the complexity of it in order to solve it. And uh, that means learning and, and saying, I don't know, and asking for a lot of help wherever we can get it. I'm going to turn now from Reverend Carol Bull from the United Church of Ware to Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel. Rabbi, your congregation, our congregation, is, is in fact politically active around climate change. You want to tell the listeners what is going on at CBI? Sure. Well, you know, we, we certainly part of our um, you know volunteer committee structures. We have kind of an activist. Uh, you know, you know, we, we have a committee that's essentially in charge of, of social activism in our community. And there's always been a climate change group to let us know what's going on in the legislature, what's going on locally, what actions can we take. Um, recently, there's been there's uh, developed actually a, a national uh, Jewish climate change movement called Dayenu, and um, and local and uh, locally all the communities have contributed to to uh, to being part of that. And then on so on Friday, uh, they're having the second uh, action of, of the past few several months, where uh, we're having where there's a protest. Uh, and action staged outside of Bank of America, uh, which is one of the funders of um, of you know the many coal plants uh, and mines that are contributing directly to climate change uh, and that are not stopping, right? Contrary to all evidence that that's exactly what we need to do. So three o'clock downtown in front of Bank of America, we're gathering and there's going to be an action. Um, and I should point out that at these actions, it's not only um, emphasizing uh, the potential catastrophic consequences 
right? That can come about. It's also about emphasizing uh, human resilience and human agency and the changes that can happen if we actually uh, take steps to, um, you know, to to block, um, you know, the the problems that are contributing to climate change. So. Um, you know, this is what I talked about on the high holidays, right? We live on this precipice. We can choose for bad. We can also choose for good. We are speaking with Rabbi Justin David and Reverend Carol Bull. This is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more with the Reverend and the Rabbi right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Poti. In my practice, I see an average of six people a day with a heroin addiction. They all tell me the same thing. They started out abusing pills. And 70% of the time, they got them from family or friends. Sometimes they were given them, and sometimes they stole them. We have to keep prescription drugs out of the wrong hands. If you're not actively using a medicine, get rid of it. Don't save it for a rainy day. Let's get these drugs out of circulation. This Saturday is Drug Take Back Day. It's happening across the country and locally at over a dozen locations in Western Mass. Drop off prescription drugs, no questions asked. Don't flush them. Don't toss them in the trash. Bring them to one of the drop-off locations. Prescription drugs lingering in medicine cabinets leads to heroin use. It's a simple fact. So please, if there are meds hanging around in your house, get rid of them safely. This Saturday from 10 to 2. Find a drop-off location near you at the Northwestern District Attorney website. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with Reverend Carol Bull from the United Church of Ware and Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel in Northampton. Reverend Carol Bull should point out, I know a lot of listeners saying, I know that name, but I didn't know about the United Church of Ware. And that's because Carol Bull for many years before becoming the Reverend at the United Church of Ware was the coordinator for spiritual and pastor, pastoral care at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. And that's why her name is familiar to so many of us. Uh, during the break, we were having a conversation. Justin, you raised a question and an issue with Reverend Carol Bull. Uh, why don't you share that with our listeners? Sure, sure. Well, so I'm not so familiar with where. Uh, my kids went to summer camp near where and um, you know, so I, I, you know, drove through and I know it's, it's a really varied and complex community, but I also know from reputation that it has um, uh, a history of having to contend with real poverty and economic inequality, um, which I see as something systemic, right? Something that's part of the, you know, condition, the sort of the conditions that have been created for the town um, politically and economically. But I'm wondering if, um, a kind of environmental inequality has um, come into that as well. You know, we look at where sort of high impact, high, uh, high toxic uh, economic development happens, uh, environmental development happens, like, you know, where, where bus depots put, where are waste treatment plants put, where are um, garbage dumps placed. And, you know, there's a pretty shameful history in our country of placing those um, really sort of damaging, uh, you know, places in poor communities. And I'm wondering if, if that's something that you know about or have heard about or have seen um, in your experience and where. Yes. Oh, we lost Carol. <laughs> we did. That was it. Oh, I'm very oh, sorry. I think there was a time when we lost. We got our one-word answer, though. We got the very answer. succinct. The answer is... <laughs> that was something. Um, well, let me ask this: since we're Northamptonite, since we're well, not all not all Northamptonites, but but do we see that here? Do we see that in our communities? The the placement well, of really sort of toxic envir environmental hazards um, in places where poor people live. Well, we certainly see it in Springfield. And there yeah. was that attempt, of course, to have the uh, uh, that that new plant with the wood burning pellets in the poorest communities in, uh, in Springfield. And it's only in the last few uh, weeks or months that that's, that's actually come to some resolution, uh, thanks to uh, helpful, helpful actions by the Massachusetts legislature. So uh, Western Massachusetts has a bad history of in fact placing toxic toxic energy sites and dumps and trying to place them in the poorest communities. And it happens of course, because those communities, at least historically, are the least capable of defending themselves because they have the least uh, economic might and the, and the uh, smallest amount of political power. So the answer is, do we see this in Western Massachusetts? Is absolutely yes. And historically, yeah. we see it that way as well. Uh, so uh, we will see what that what happens. And you know, I was able to, even though I know nothing about watersheds and all this stuff, 
I was able to add some things. You know, they said, who's not at the table? And I said, well, you know, there looks like we don't have any people with physical disabilities here and other disabilities. There's also, um, I don't see an indigenous presence here, you know. So I was able to add some, some ideas for them. Um, and they're, they're working with local schools. Some of the students are gonna be trained to go to these different areas and take photographs of them and figure them out, um, all these different areas related to this Muddy Brook thing. So- yeah. Actually, um, Carol, Carol, let me um, interrupt for a second. I think we, we, we lost you. Um, but we're, and we're gonna lose uh, all of you in 20 yeah, seconds. So love you all to pieces. The show is ending. <laughs> <laughs> going to put it all together next week. We will. We've been listening to the Reverend and the Rabbi, Reverend Carol Bull from the United Church of Ware, Rabbi Justin David from Congregation of B'nai Israel. Thank you both so very much. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. I was trying to do two things at once, and I again. And they charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash newengland. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.